0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Phil Sharp. Phil is one of the most influential biologists and scientific entrepreneurs in biotech history. Phil won the Nobel Prize in 1993 for his work on RNA splicing. His basic insights into discontinuous genes shed light on what can go awry with cancer and certain genetic diseases. Coming of age as a biologist in the late 1970s, Phil was in the right place at the right time. He paired up with the trailblazing biologist Wally Gilbert of Harvard and others to co-found Biogen in 1978. The biotech industry was just beginning. In this episode, we started by talking about Phil's upbringing on a family farm in Kentucky. His path was not preordained. In this conversation, he talks about finding his way as a young man in science. Toward the end, we talk about the early days at Biogen. We didn't discuss the more recent chapters of his career, which includes the co founding of Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, the RNA interference drug developer. That would take more than an hour. Now before we start the episode, a couple quick things. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development program advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small to mid-sized pharma companies. PPD knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and the right cultural fit, PPD works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com. I'm really thankful to see PPD Biotech come back as a sponsor of this show. Thanks, guys. And are you a marquee service provider to the industry? Eager to get your name out in front of the biotech leaders who listen to this show every other week? Ask me about sponsorship opportunities. Luke at TimmermanReport.com The other thing you can do is invest in quality journalism by purchasing a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual subscriber. Companies and universities with multiple readers can purchase a group sharing license at a discount. When you do that, you'll be able to read my writing, plus in-depth reports from highly experienced contributors like Stacey Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, Leora Schiff, and more. Go to timbermanreportcom slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and Phil Sharp on The Long Run.
1: Welcome, Phil Sharp, to the Long Run Podcast. Uh, It's nice to be with you, Luke. I look forward to the podcast. So,
0: um... With this show, I often like to talk about people's early lives, especially people who've achieved as much as you have in science and in biotech. I think there are great lessons to pass on to future generations and and to help form connections within the biotech community so that we understand that we we have a lot of things in common. Uh, And, you know, when I was doing research on you, reading your Nobel lecture last night at the hotel, uh, I realized you grew up on a farm and I did, too.
1: Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) I grew up on a small farm in Kentucky. Um, We bought the farm when I was seven. I worked with my father on the farm for about uh, eight more years. And then my father started working in a nearby city, Cincinnati. And then after I graduated from high school, uh, you know, I went off to college. They... Retained the farm; they owned it for all their life. Uh, but, uh, but I I worked on farms. I actually worked horses in the field. My father let me do that just to to say I was uh, able to do so. So, uh, so
0: Phil, um, you're growing up in it's eastern Kentucky.
1: It's sort of north northern Kentucky. It's peculiar. We're between Cincinnati and Lexington, which is a well-traveled thorough. But off the main road by about 15, 20 miles, uh, a very small um, uh, rural area. Uh, My family had been there since 1840, and uh, so it was a a very uh, rural uh, origin. Uh, Did you have any siblings? Two sisters. Mm -hmm. Older, younger? One older, six years, one younger by two. Okay, so what kind of farm was this? Well, we raised tobacco and I spent my life in cancer research, so there's a little <laughs> bit of economy uh, here. Uh, we had some cows which we milked, and we raised animals, uh, very small. Uh, how many acres? Uh, 140, 50 acres, something like that. But most of it in northern Kentucky is pretty hilly. So that could be used for pasturing and hay. But uh, the, there are some flat lands along the Licking River that uh, was where we raised uh, the crops. So you had tobacco cash crop,
0: uh, also some livestock. Livestock
1: uh, raised corn, soybeans. Uh, uh, always a family garden, which I wish I had now because it's so delicious eating out of a garden. Uh-huh. And uh, every morning and evening dealing with uh, the milking and housing of animals, and you know putting up hay and uh, all the routine of a of a country farm.
0: That reminds me of my upbringing. There's a lot of routine, morning and evening chores, <laughs> after before school, after, after school. school. Um, so you you did a lot of. Uh, Being the only son, I mean, I'm guessing, did you tag along and do a lot of manual work with your dad?
1: As old as I was, uh, as soon as I could walk, (laughs) (laughs) I tagged along and then uh, became, uh, you know, a worker with him. It taught me how to focus and and work. Um, And that's actually a good lesson for people. I mean, when you don't think you can do it and you got a bunch of mature men working beside you, you do
0: it. <laughs> well, hundred acre, 140 acre farm with, you know, your dad and yourself and maybe a few other relatives around. Right. I mean, there's a, always more work to do. Then, um, then you you've got figure to figure it out. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yep. And you have to be part of the the team. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So what other um,
0: values would you say were a important part of your household? I mean, hard work and, you know, being consistent and reliable I'm sure were part of it. Well,
1: we were very frugal because there's not a lot of money in in that uh, whole process at the time Um, and, uh, you know you had to develop relationships with people and, you know, exchange work because you can't, two people can't do many of the jobs, you have to have others help you do it and um, You've got to depend on each other. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be pretty straightforward and honest or you're not going to be able to work with people that way.
0: Everybody knows everybody in a small yeah. town. Your reputation precedes you.
1: And your, your family's reputation precedes you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's that type of community it was. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, what about education? I went to the public school. Um, my freshman class had 16 students in it. Uh, We consolidated into a whole county school called Pendleton County. It's still there. And uh, that was 65 students. Um, I was the most science oriented student in my class uh, by far. Um, And, uh, you know, out of my class, uh, I would say we had 65, probably six, maybe 12, but between six and 12 got some college education. Mm-hmm. Uh, the disappointing fact is I'm still in contact with that community and it's still that way. Uh, it really... Uh, so, um, you know, uh, I played basketball. That was uh, the the team sport of everybody's interest. Uh, Friday night lights sort of scene. What position? Oh, I was a small forward. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, I... I I graduated. I applied to one school <laughs> uh, that was no counselors. The principal called me in, a really nice guy named Mr. Beck, and said, Phil, what are you going to do when you uh, graduate? I said, I'm applying to Union College, and he said, that's fine, <laughs> and I walked out. <laughs> and that, that was it. I did get an interesting community. I. I um, now you said you were interested in science where did that come from? That started when I was about uh, eleven um, I was always the the best with numbers yeah right in, in a small community it doesn't mean anything but it was you know something i I always found appealing to math and various things and then when I uh, started... Um, You think about, like, crop yields, and you know? No, no, I was never big in farming. I didn't. Okay. (laughs) I soon decided that that's not where I was going to spend my life. (laughs) But uh, I started uh, reading books about science. Uh, This was NASA beginning to emerge. It was a lot of... The 50s. 50s, yeah. It was a lot of... Uh, uh, public affairs about that. Sputnik. Uh, Sputnik, numbers, you know, astronomy, various other things. Um, and I just, I talked to, to my friends about it and I started reading. Um, I, I think we, in that community where you don't have professionals around you, you don't have table conversation around science and that sort of thing. We're young people get their information is from books and reading. So... Um, you had a good public library? I never went into a public library. I had a school library. Okay. I mean, I was 15 miles from a town <laughs> uh-huh. so I, uh, when I was young, but the school library was a poor country, small town school library, but I read everything there. And um, then, uh, you know, you are what you read. You know, essentially, you are what you read when you come from that origin, and uh, so I started reading and talking and found things to stimulate me.
0: You know, it's interesting. Your background has some parallels to uh, Lee Hood. uh, You know, who I wrote the book about. Uh, 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 Montana is where he uh, grew up, but similar kind of small town small towns yeah. not rural yeah. he, he was not yeah. on a farm but yeah. you know similar kind of like not a uh, uh, there was no big university nearby and people kind of yeah. like putting you on a certain path yeah. it, it gave him and i think Irv Weissman was a friend of his yeah. growing up yeah. in Montana that they thought later in life that sort of room to uh, imagine things and explore. They weren't suffocated by, from the age of three trying to get into a place like MIT. <laughs>
1: no. Never discussed. MIT was never discussed. Uh-huh. No, I, It gave me a freedom, but it also gave me an uncharted path. Um, I, you know, I wasn't led down a path of get your college degree, go get a PhD, go do research. That wasn't laid out for me. So from the time I started in high school, I was forging my own path. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was taking the risk that I could do it and I could find the money. I could make it all work. And it taught me through that process. It taught me to be independent about making decisions and, you know, evaluating what I could do, what seemed reasonable how could I make this decision and moving on it? So, even those life decisions were, yes, very informative in, in, in working with people and and making it, it work.
0: And as a teenager, you decide on a big one Union College. I'm in H- college. H- how did you arrive there?
1: How did I arrive there? I wanted to go to college. I certainly didn't want to spend the rest of my life on a farm. And my parents strongly. Uh, felt that that was the opportunity for somebody to advance and and, um, so they encouraged me. I started saving money for college when I was seven years old. Wow. Actually, I was five years old. I bought a a piggy bank, actually it was a rooster bank. Uh, My grandfather came from town with a little calf, heifer calf. I paid $16.75 for that calf at five. And uh, that animal grew up to be a cow. We milked the cow. My father used the milk and sold it. I got the calf. And the calf was sold every year. I put it in the bank. I agreed. They gave me some tobacco acreage. Whatever happens there, you get the money for it to go to college. So, you know, by the time I was... In high school, I had d- continued to be encouraged to, to save my resources and, and go to college. So I paid for about a year and a half of college out of that fund.
0: Interesting. Great lesson for learning responsibility. You
1: just, yeah, you had to do it.
0: <laughs> so you go to Union College, and uh, what, what did you decide to study?
1: Oh, from the time I went there, my interest was in math and and chemistry uh, at that stage. And um, so I started along that path uh, uh, as a freshman. It was a—and it it isn't a a school that uh, stands abreast of the best in the country. It was a small school. I really wanted a small school population. I came off a farm. I, I was petrified. I'd go to a big school and not connect enough to be comfortable.
0: Get lost in the crowd Get at a place like
1: in UK and Lexington. That's right. That's right. That was the, the other. So I was I was not comfortable. I thought there was too much risk there. <laughs> so I, I went to a small school. But it's private school. It's private expensive. School. Yeah, a little more expensive. Not mm-hmm. a lot. And... Um, And it was a very supportive school. I made lots of friends. Uh, um, You know, I had professors who were, you know, supportive. But then I ran into a professor in my junior year who just moved there named Dan Foote, who I'm still in contact with. And um, he just came out of the University of Illinois, a postdoc at the Cleveland uh, Clinic came down to uh, teach there and I spent you know half my day. I was a, a teaching assistant for him and I took two, two classes every semester with him. So he encouraged me to uh, apply mid-year, uh, apply to graduate school. Um, I applied in January because I had finished my requirements in three and a half years and the uh, University of Illinois uh, accepted me.
0: Urbana-Champaign. Urbana-Champaign. The, the Big Ten. Uh, an excellent school. school. excellent school. Uh, and this was ni- mid-60s. Uh, this was 66. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Vietnam's on. What What, what was Vietnam happening to you? Vietnam's on?
1: Yes. I, they, you know, I was deferred because I was going to graduate school. Um, and then as Vietnam got much more intense, my local draft board called me up. Uh, Uh, remove my deferment, but the regional draft board, when I appealed, uh, supported the deferment. Uh, So I was in the University of Illinois. I just want to tell a little story there. So I went to the University of Illinois in Chemistry, great department, top 10 in the country. I took the entrance exams in the four areas, you know, organic, inorganic, and I failed three of them. I had just not seen them mature as a, a, from the union uh, organic chemistry, which Dan Foote taught me, I passed easily. Uh, but they did exactly what they should have done. They asked me to take their senior courses in those three subjects. And so one semester I took the, the three courses, senior courses, then. Three years later, I got my degree.
0: You were young anyway, I mean so, early
1: entry yeah, um, yeah but that that could have shaken your confidence. Well, yes well I wasn't I wasn't pleased by it <laughs> I, it wasn't unexpected because I had looked at the textbooks and I just there was some material I just didn't I hadn't um, covered in in any of the courses but uh, it gave me great confidence. Yeah, I got you know, stood high in each of those classes and then just rolled into graduate school and in three years. Uh, I had my PhD and went to Caltech when, who, uh, for a postdoc. Who was your advisor at Illinois? Victor Bloomfield. Um, Victor, uh, ultimately, uh, he was a young professor there. We had a great communication with each other, he supported me strongly. Um, And then he moved to Minnesota uh, several years after I left uh, Illinois and developed his career. He just retired from the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: So you got your Ph.D. pretty quickly, Um, this is late 60s, around 1970? 69. '69. Uh, Okay, so what were you thinking that you might do with that?
1: Well, I got my Ph.D. in uh, physical chemistry. Describing the hydrodynamics, the viscosity and sedimentation and uh, other properties of polymers, but stiff polymers like DNA, so it was clearly modeling DNA as a polymer. I started, um, during my uh, graduate work, uh, reading about molecular biology and and, um, particularly with chromosomes and the, the questions of the day. Was you know chromosomes one piece of DNA? How large was the DNA? What was the the uh, uh, you know distribution of genes and sequences on it?
0: Now was this some of your own independent reading yeah, and independent study? Because when you say physical chemistry and polymers, I'm immediately thinking you could have gone into another industry. You could have gone like to 3M or something.
1: Uh, three three out of every four graduate students out of that program went into private sector. Uh-huh one in four uh went into uh academic uh research um i could have uh, but i wasn't motivated to do that i mm-hmm. uh, I really enjoy learning and um, and so i I started reading about molecular biology. I got genetic books, uh, books on genetics. I read genetics because I knew I needed to know genetics to understand what I was reading. Um, and started reading a Cold Spring Harbor Symposium. I think it was 66 or 67, you know, they, in those days you had this tomb of all the talks at Cold Spring Harbor. It was on chromosomes. And, it seemed uh, a field in which a physical chemist could make contributions and terribly exciting questions. So uh, that motivated me to look for a postdoc in which uh, someone would understand my training in physical chemistry. but had a strong interest in 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 biological systems and that's where norman davidson at caltech came in
0: this is where you begin to move out of a narrow disciplinary definition yeah. cross-disciplinary cross-disciplinary yeah so how how did you end up in norm norm davidson's lab at caltech
1: well uh I, I sent him a letter uh asking um and then I know I got very strong support out of Victor Bloomfield. And uh, and Norman was, a, uh, he was well-established, got in National Academy as a chemist, a shock tube chemist, an inorganic chemist, uh, extraordinarily clear thinker, chemist uh, approach to biology. He, he got uh, throat cancer in, um, I'd say, around 50, 55. Um got radiation out of Chicago, Uh, didn't know if he was going to survive, he did, Uh, and made the transition into biology uh, and with an orientation towards uh, uh, DNA and DNA DNA properties. He had the great luck of having Ron Davis uh, do a PhD with him and Ron Davis now at Stanford. Uh, now at Stanford. Great friend. Uh, mm-hmm. Wonderful guy. Um, developed uh, electron microscopy of DNA and saw the first deletion of a genome. You know, uh, on a genome, uh, taking lambda phage in which genetic had been genetically mapped as deletions with uh, uh, Roy Parker, I think. No, it's not. It's not Roy, but it's Parker, who. Um, uh, as another grad student, and they and they, um, that was the first visualization, and then Shabolsky and and uh, Davis used uh, Formamid to do those loops and map deletions, and when I arrived at Caltech, that was just had developed. Um,
0: and Caltech obviously has this great tradition—I uh, mean, of both science and technology using technology okay. to help advance your science, science yep. gather new kinds of data, ask new kinds questions. of questions—and yep. it's small. It's, it's very small. It's small, so like the chemists can actually go meet the biologists pretty yeah.
1: easily. Yeah, no, you could—you could had access to anyone. So when I went to Caltech, uh, Norman Davison's lab was. Uh, in the the basement of the building called church. Uh, Jerry Vinograd was next door. Um, You know, I had read about uh, Jerry's research in uh, superhelical DNA and interlocked superhelical DNA. He should have gotten a Nobel for that. And um, so I went and I sat in on his uh, group meetings. I sat in on Norman's, you know, participated in Norman's lab. I met most of the biologists. It's a wonderful place. Given its smallness, people walk across the campus have lunch together graduate students sit around and talk to people you can talk you know go to parties and you know you're sitting outside you, you and somebody sits there and you strike up a conversation ed lewis yeah uh, became a friend it was uh and you it, meet this guy ron davis and he's working with electron
0: microscopy and he's seeing things in uh like Deletions of, deletions of DNA that are kind of like,
1: what, what does that mean? Well, it was clear what it meant, oh. but what it meant in terms of what you could ultimately do in looking at gene relationships wasn't clear to the community. I mean, uh, the first experiments were pretty predictable. My, uh, Norman wanted to map genes on the back E. coli chromosome. Can we map genes on bigger chromosomes? And that was what he asked me to do. Uh, Or we agreed that this is where I was going to start. And I was going to try to do that biochemically, but because I got, um, I decided that uh, working with plasmids was the right way to pick up pieces of chromosomes and isolate them. So uh, I started, uh, uh, and this is, I started using, uh, isolating plasmids out of, uh, uh, bacteria that picked up—they were called F primes. They pick up pieces of bacterial chromosomes, and I could map their relationship on chromosomal DNA and to each other, and where genes were, and lambda integration, and um, and I found transposable elements. Um, and it was—you know—everything I was doing, no one else had ever done. Uh, Stanley Cohen uh, had come to Caltech. He uh, worked with Venograd for a couple of months. He was at Stanford, as you know mm-hmm. wanting to to uh, uh, learn more about his drug resistant plasmids and so I sh- struck up a, a interaction with him, supported by Norman, and we did some uh, electron uh, comparison of, of drug resistant factors and found deletions and transposable elements and you, you know it was uh, it was really you know, very uh, interesting um, so I, I learned a lot of molecular biology, I met a lot of people I started interested in the history of the bacterial genetics of F primes I went to um, Stanford uh, met Many people uh, uh, there, so it it was. uh, It sounds like you caught the buck. This is when you decided
0: I'm I'm becoming a molecular biologist, biochemist.
1: I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) No, I wanted to use my my knowledge of physical chemistry in that approach, but I was clearly by that time made my decision that I was going to go into molecular biology, and I also made the decision that I didn't want to. Launch my research in the study of bacterial systems because genetics and and it was very it was getting very um, highly developed, and I thought uh, someone who was interested in in understanding the structure of DNA and other things had more opportunity to have an impact in uh, mammalian molecular biology, cell biology, let's call it cell biology.
0: Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development program advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small to mid-sized pharma companies. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and the right cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com. Another alternative to support quality independent reporting is to subscribe to Timmerman Report. You can get an individual subscription or a company license that comes with sharing rights. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit the green button that says subscribe. Caltech was very strong in those days in model systems. Not so much the the human or mammalian. No,
1: they weren't. (laughs) Uh And... uh... But Jerry Venegran, who was, uh, as I said, next to Norman, and I had set in, in his lab group meetings, uh, was using SB40 uh, to uh, study SB40 replication, and and in that in the study of SB40 in polyomas, where he found superhelical DNA, and um, and that superhelical DNA was a plasmid, so. I struck up a collaboration with Jury. We were trying to understand what was now called defective interfering particles. If you, you know, pass that virus at high multiplicity, it will accumulate deletions. And that wasn't recognized. And by just looking at the, the DNA comparison in an electron microscope, I could see them and, and made many many. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, we we then understood why these uh, interfering particles, what they were. Um, Ron Davis had originally looked at these samples and you know and at the end of his PhD thesis and put a little chapter uh, appendix on his thesis, which was wonderful. And then I struck it up. So I at that stage I knew I wanted to go into mammalian cell and molecular cell biology. Um, and I wanted to use viruses. Mm-hmm. And that led, how did you end up going to Cold Spring Harbor? Well, so this was 69, mm-hmm. uh, uh, 69, 71.
0: So a couple year stint postdoc at uh, Caltech. It was two
1: years stint So in 71, the job market was really not strong. Uh, I applied because I had spent two years as a postdoc and I was going to leave the lab. Um, and got interviewed at a number of chemistry departments, and thank goodness I didn't take the job. <laughs> and in the jo- places that were contacting me about interest in me, now I, did you have a family by this point? Oh, yeah, I yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I can. Okay, so you got bills to, pay. <laughs> I have bills to pay. I have bills to pay. I had bills to pay, but you know, Anne and I were very—we uh, were a team supported each other. and um, so could, could have gotten a
0: job as a physical chemistry professor somewhere.
1: Somewhere, but it wasn't where I wanted to do. So, I wrote to, with Norman, um, I wrote to uh, 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 Howard Timman uh, up at Wisconsin, Dave Baltimore here. and
0: Won the so, Nobel for re- uh, reverse
1: transcriptase. Timman, you know, reverse transcriptase. And mm-hmm. then, Day ball. They hadn't won the Nobel then. Right. But, you know, it was pretty clear who they were and what they'd be doing. All of them molecular oriented uh, virology using viruses that had DNA uh, as part of the replicative cycle. And then Jim Watson had just gone to Cold Spring Harbor and he was setting up a new lab at Cold Spring Harbor with a focus on DNA viruses, SB40 at that stage. Um, and how they created tumors. So you said,
0: accumulating deletions. Yeah, uh, so. that, that's interesting. What does, what, where does that lead?
1: Was uh, that, that Well, I, it was I, I knew I wanted to, to, to work with viruses in mammalian cells, interested in adding biology to that interest. Uh, it could have been in development, but virology was, you know, where I really wanted to go. And DNA tumor viruses was a wonderful place to you know, use my background uh, to uh, understand those problems. How did? What were the oncogenes? Where were they at? You know, what did they do? Was it many genes, one gene? Whatever. But these, these viruses created cancer. So uh, neither Baltimore said, I won't have an open position for two years. <laughs> and Timmons said, oh, come on up, we'll talk. Watson called me, you know, the week after he got the letter, and said, "Okay, you got a position, but you got to make a decision tomorrow. I'm going to Europe, and I'm going to find a postdoc there if if if, if the position's open." So this was a second postdoc. Yeah.
0: Okay. So um, Started, not
1: not faculty.
0: No. But no. you could explore the Harbor, You could explore the questions. You had
1: resources. I had resources. So I went. to to, so I called back. I went and talked to people at Caltech about what Jim was doing at Cold Spring Harbor, and they said there was this guy there with him, Jerry Venegrad, and said, Joe Sandberg, and he said, he's fabulous, all right? And that's a good team, and they're great. Um, so I called back the next week and uh, next day and said, I'm coming. So I went to Cold Spring Harbor. I, it was, of new labs, new people coming in. Joe Sandbrook was there. Uh, uh, many other people were there. Um, and Walter Keller as a biochemist. And um, so uh, I started working with or collaborating with Joe a lot um, on uh, studying the, the uh, Gene expression RNA, uh, mapping it on SB40 and def- deciding determining where the genes that were involved in cancer. It was the early region. We could find those in tumor cells. We could find those RNAs in in infected cells, uh, and that was new. And then we uh, started uh, mapping RNAs in in tumor cells. Uh, large T, small T, but that wasn't known. It was the early region It was pre-splicing. Um, and then collaborating with Wolf-Peterson, uh, who had come from Leonard Philipson's lab, uh, who knew how to work with adenovirus. And adenovirus was, SV40 is a 5-megadolton-barse DNA genome. Uh, adenovirus is a 35-kilobase. You know, it's a bigger... Uh, um, genome. And um, that had some appeal to me because it was easier to, to use electron microscopy and physical techniques. And then in the, the middle of the first year, um, uh, Ham Smith and Dan Nathans you know published a paper on restriction enzymes. And then uh, Herb Boyer and EcoR1 here we got the tools to break DNA apart, and uh, in segments. And um, uh, I uh, uh, developed a technique where we could run gels and stain them and assay for you know, different restriction enzymes. So we we were quickly, uh, you know, having preparations of restriction enzymes that really no one else had.
0: Um, These are heady days in the early days, 70s. Early days. Recombinant DNA. papers,
1: baby. Pump those papers. <laughs> this was pre-recombinant. This is in 72, 73.
0: But the tools for making recombinant DNA were, 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 coming,
1: were... And Berg yep. was out there prophesying. And, and, um, and then you know, uh, uh, Cohen and Boyer was just ready to happen. Happened uh, within... before 75, and um, so we, you know, I was beginning to, I was interested in in mapping the genome, resolving where the ALCA genes were, how they fit into the virolytic cycle, what genes were being expressed, and how we could map those on the genome. I, I became a staff member at Cold Spring Harbor after one year, and so that, that, uh, uh, but I, after two years at Cold Spring Harbor, I clearly um, made the decision that I wanted to be at a university. Run your own lab. I run set set own your own mind. research agenda. My own research. I wanted people who talked about chemistry and physics and biology and social things and everything. I wanted to be at a university. Mm-hmm. So I went on the job market and traveled the country, gave talks. And then uh, waited. I knew MIT was putting together the cancer center that day. Baltimore was going to be a, a, one of the prominent people there. And Salvador Luria was the director. And um, I was hoping I would get a call from them. And old, you know, ultimately, in the spring of uh, 74, I did. I came up, gave a talk. Um, week later which is often an audition for a job, job. interview. Well it was a job interview. Yeah. Luria called me and invited me for a job interview, said we want to talk to you. And so I came up and met everybody and gave a talk. Uh, did the, the traditional evening, you know, dinner with everyone. And then um, a week later Luria called and said, We want to offer you a job. And uh, I said I'll be up next week and next, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I came up, and the negotiations was very brief. You know, that's fine. I'm on the same floor with Dave Baltimore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Salary, uh, whatever you guys pay care. those people
1: <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. I just want to be that in that position mm-hmm. because I knew if I was in that position. Uh, with Bob Weinberg there already, and two more labs, and Nancy Hopkins was going to be recruited next door, and, and ultimately, Dave Hausman came down. Um, we were going to be in an environment in which people wanted to do this type of research, and um, that I was one of the more, you know, biophysical types in that community. Uh, I was working on DNA viruses. Everybody else was working on retroviruses. Uh, I, I was very comfortable that we could, we could really do something special.
0: It was a very fertile environment. Right there, uh, the old building on Ames, was it, that it?
1: Well, it's a cancer center on Ames. Uh, it was a chocolate factory that they uh-huh. had gutted and just stuck in uh, all the ventilation and everything you needed for laboratories. So we were on the fifth floor of the cancer center. And the, the legend at MIT was the lights never went out on the fifth floor of the cancer center. <laughs> and <laughs> you, they didn't. You had a
0: lot of young rising stars with a lot yeah. of energy and, and really interesting questions to tear and it into. it was so
1: crowded that sometimes the only time you could get to a, a device was to come in in the evening and, and work in, uh, into the morning hours. So,
0: you know, you've never been here ever since. 1974, uh, came yep. to MIT, and it's been a great place for you to build your career. Uh, I think you're, was you're, it wasn't that long before your like the big discovery, the one that got you the Nobel. This was around, was the this seven, around the 77? 77. 77. 77. D- discontinuous genes. Discontinuous th- 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 genes, introns,
1: exons. Now,
0: now uh, you'll have to correct me. I want to probably butcher this, okay. but um, you're... Th- this is the idea that there are these spaces mm-hmm. in-, in the gene that uh, that get edited out. and at the, r- at the RNA level. At the RNA level. Mm-hmm. And end up creating a distinctly different protein from that same sequence. Yeah. So if you were to put this on a bumper sticker, it's one gene, two proteins.
1: Or 10 proteins. Or 10 proteins. Or 30 proteins.
0: And this challenged... A lot every, of dogma. Every, like every dogma. Uh, this is uh, so going back to your Caltech days, <laughs> it, you know, George Beadle, yeah, he, yeah. He, he coined that phrase one gene, one protein. Yeah. Gene makes protein. protein. That's the central dogma.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and you're coming along Blowing people's minds.
1: Blowing people's minds, but in addition to all of that, it said there was a whole new world here. <laughs> you know, in, in the nucleus of a cell, which you know bacteria don't have nucleus, nucleus of cell. We were carrying out these processes of splicing and joining RNA and and adding poly A and the capping. That was already known. It was just a whole new world. And uh, from a molecular biologist, biochemist's by point of view. It was just opened up the world to a whole host of, of discoveries. Did you get a lot of
0: pushback? People think, not oh, no. believing this?
1: No, no. No, they uh, got it. They got it. Uh, that was one of the striking things. You know, I do the, the work of my life. And within two months, everybody around the, the, the world, every molecular model just knew about it. So the next question, what's new? <laughs> you know, so, and, and, you know, big, uh, very large labs it came into the field as they had to because this was the way the systems worked. And, you know, I was there with a postdoc. <laughs> and, uh, just you and a postdoc? No, I had at that stage three graduate students and... Four postdocs, okay. but the graduate students were working on other things, and one of them started working on splicing. But I never pulled anyone off of a research project.
0: So the world starts beating a path to your door. This has been after the publication. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Was, was 'g seven? run off and publish this thing in Nature or Science. And well,
1: I put it in PNAS because I wasn't sure that um, uh, an editor of Nature or Science would understand it or would would think it's real, from uh, someone who had just been starting to publish in this field. I asked Dave Baltimore to be the editor, and um, so I I would have a direct voice in the process, and that ultimately led to uh, a publication. So the first paper with the word splicing on it, and the EMs that are in your textbook typically, the Cold Spring Harbor Group worked in parallel differently than us. Uh, his IPN yeah, aspect, but you didn't
0: have quite the clout with the journal editors at that time. No,
1: no it didn't know me. Uh, yeah. Well, someone knew me because I had been prominent at meetings uh, from my time at Cold Spring Harbor.
0: Okay, so this is uh, this is exciting stuff. Now you're you're really rolling here with your lab biotech comes along. And, you know, in in your Nobel lecture, I found this great phrase. You said, the development of biotechnology has both enriched and complicated my work. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a lot in that phrase. So the founding of Biogen, it's just a year later, 1978. I guess you'd heard about those guys on the West Coast, Genentech, right? Well, Well, there's
1: there's a little more story there. Okay. Um, In 77, spring of 77, I get a call from uh, a venture capitalist, who I never even knew what the term meant, uh, named Ray Schaefer. He was an ex-MIT alum. Uh, He was working with International Nickel, started a venture capital uh, office in International Nickel. Uh, He called me and said, "Um, I uh, have an opportunity to invest in a new company on the West Coast that's uh, dealing with DNA. Uh, will you come out and consult on that investment? Um, I didn't know Ray Schaefer. I would never consulted. didn't know what a venture capitalist was. Really, I didn't. And so I checked him out with colleagues at a senior faculty at MIT. He told me who, who he had worked with before. And they gave him the highest level of, of um, uh, credibility. And so I bought a ticket, flew to San Francisco. And in walked uh, Swanson, Boyer, Itacor, and Riggs. This was Genentech. Yeah. This was Genentech after they put 20000 each and Kleiner and Perkins put in uh, some money. And this was the first... Audition for an external investment in Genentech. So, four
0: guys and a dog.
1: <laughs> four guys and a dog. That's exactly <laughs> what it was. And that was all it was. You know, here was, uh, you know, Swanson was a businessman. Her Boyer was restriction enzymes and linking DNA with Cohen. Um, Itacor was a DNA synthesis uh, uh, expert. And Riggs was the biologist who could do immunoassays and other assays, and so they they proposed A and B chain of insulin, synthetically made, linked together within the guidelines, you know, because it wasn't isolated from cells, so it was pure; it wasn't going to create dangerous genes. Sure. And uh, they were going to produce insulin, uh, growth hormone. They were going to make the gene and then put it in bacteria, uh, make growth hormone.
0: And Schaefer wanted to know, is this real? Could this, this be real? done?
1: Can't, well, could it be done? And yeah. and so I they, they left. I said, you know, I don't know if you can make a buck out of this, but those guys are going to do this. <laughs> right. And uh, they they bought in. They were a major investor. Um, and Schaefer and... Uh, 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 Ta so Associ- Kevin Landry Ta Associates uh, continued the conversation. I, the conversation expanded to Wally Gilbert at Harvard. So Wally and I had certain meetings with Ray Schaefer. Uh There was a meeting organized uh, with Wally and I as we're going to host a meeting in Geneva.
0: So you kind, of, you kind of hit it off with Schaefer, like you helped him with diligence yeah. he was presumably satisfied with the report yeah. You, yeah. you gave back and now he's thinking, well maybe maybe I can do something with you well, or, or idea, somebody else here well, in the Boston. Well
1: idea then was, you know, Genentech was the first company and it was the West Coast and uh, the, the plan was it would be a second company, it would be Biogen, well ultimately Biogen became the name And it was East Coast and Europe. And Mm. that was going to be the two biotech companies. We had it all planned out. You would conquer the world. East Coast, West Coast, Coast, Europe. Europe. That's it. (laughs) So so, um, they invited a number of European scientists, Charles Weisman, uh, Kevin Landry, uh, I mean, uh, Ken Murray and a number of others, uh, to Geneva with Wally and I and we have a scientific meeting in which you know we discuss what could be done with this technology and we those we have a a transcript of those meetings i mean uh, it it's really interesting to look back at that transcript of you know what we put on the board what we said was was doable in the short term we were going to have a company that was in medicine and agriculture and energy and, <laughs> and fine <laughs> chemicals. It was the world was our, our teacup at that stage because here was a new technology: synthetic biology. Never been done before.
0: And Wally was one of the, another rising star in the faculty at Harvard. Well, he and, wasn't
1: a rising star. Wally was a star well, at that stage. He, he had been ordained with a Nobel. Prize.
0: Right. That came, <laughs> I think, later 1980. But, yeah. you know, the Maxim Gilbert sequencing method, the DNA sequencing was, was out there. It was out there. A- around that time. Yeah. So that probably put him on the VC radar. Yeah.
1: That, well, he, uh, and other things. I, if we were going to do something in this field, in this area it was going to be Wally <laughs> because he was the persona of a very important part of this technology and an extraordinary intellect
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and so a little ahead of you in the oh, I- oh, yes, at that gosh. time oh yeah 15 years ahead of me and and a fully established world visible leader
0: so um you start the idea of starting a company when uh, how, how'd that come about?
1: Well that's what venture capital is about yeah uh, And you know it was Wally's motivation and my motivation were um, here was a new technology we knew was going to be transformative. It was going to become an integral part of what society did jobs, Cure disease, make better production of of almost everything. In fact, it was conversion from an energy, oil based industry, to a plant biology based industry. That you guys was, were imagining
0: way out in the future.
1: Well, you just well think about it because it was there in front of us, mm-hmm. and so you know. And if you were going to make that happen as fast as it could happen you needed to develop a private sector with business leaders and scientists and capital and grow and train people and, and just you know, make it happen. Mm-hmm. And that was our motivation, is to make this happen as quickly as we could in this community and the world. So um, we had a lot of fun. But you weren't going to give up your day job. No, you, I didn't give up in my. Did idea. you think about it? Oh yeah.
0: No, I I, I was offered, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, Wally come in as a CEO. Did he come in as CEO right away? In?
1: No, no, he did not come. We went through two CEOs before Wally came in as a CEO. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I had. I just. I never. My lifestyle. My intellectual pleasure, the things I like to do from day to day and minute to minute, was things I did here at MIT. Mm -hmm. That's what motivated me. That's what drove me here. I found it extraordinarily gratifying. But then I had this whole other part of my life that I could also engage in. MIT was very comfortable, as long as my primary commitment was at MIT, that I was involved. I went and asked him at one time. I was considering becoming head of research there. I said, "If you really, if that's what you want to do, you know, uh, we'll give you a leave of absence for a year. You know, if 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 that, you know, if that's what you want to do, we'll work with you." Uh, and they have historically been able, they've done this. I mean, that's part of the DNA here.
0: MIT uh, has a culture of being more willing to work with industry than, say, Harvard, especially in those yeah, days.
1: <laughs> yeah, especially in those
0: days. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of tension yeah, around yeah. Wall, uh, Wally and then the, the GI guys. The guys. Yeah. Um, but um, th- you could keep your day job, so you, you figured out a, a way to balance these interests. Yeah. Like Primarily, you could remain a researcher, yeah. And then, but you could kind of keep this thing on the side. Uh, and 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 stay involved in this thing that had you very excited about yeah. its potential impact yeah. as a
1: board member, as an SAB member. I was chair of the SAB. I was board member for 29 years. Yeah. Uh, we recruited Jim Benson, uh, who came in after Wally, a CEO, a very knowledgeable, skilled, big guy, bigger than life guy, uh, as CEO, and. Uh, I worked with him uh, as chair of the Scientific Advisory Board and as uh, a member of the Board of Directors uh, for all the time he was there. And in, and in continued in that mode for, for 29 years. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh.
1: It was, uh, and to see this technology go from, you know, struggling to get financed, to try to get focused and how you build, you know, regulatory, manufacturing, you know, uh, marketing, uh, approval, yeah, it was in, in all the people that you, 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 you meet and you help. And, you know, then at the end of the day, you have alpha interferon. Charles Weissman, you know, I, I sat beside people who said, you know, my brother is here today because he had this, you know, disease and he was treated with alpha interferon and, you know,
0: Av- yeah. Avonex, the drug Avonex. it took, uh, oh, I don't know, 20 years from That's founding. to. T- That's beta. Okay.
1: That's beta. Alpha. Shearing plow, They oh, made yes. an investment, and that was used in treatment of hepatitis C and hepatitis B and in cancer. I mean, it, it 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 was approved ultimately for hairy cell leukemia, and for the fifty patients in the country that had that each year, it was a very effective treatment program. Uh, so it was. I mean, this is. And then you see people who are employed and you know, they grow up as scientists in these in the company, they, they contribute, they go to other companies. It's I mean, it was just fascinating being part of this. It was changing society. I mean, It's one of the high points of my life.
0: What, um, you know, reflecting back, you know, 30-some years later, um, I mean, I, I'm sure there was a lot of uncertainty and drama oh. along the way. I mean, you mentioned two CEOs before Wally, and then <laughs> I think Wally, you know, wasn't exactly, like, cut out to be the CEO long <laughs> <Yeah. of>
1: term. <laughs> no, but he was a visionary. It, uh, and biogen wouldn't have happened if if it wasn't for Wally. I mean, he basically was a very strong visionary leader, but not very knowledgeable in management. Um, We went public in the early 80s, I think at 23 a share. Uh Uh, We were trading at four. (laughs) Um, Several years later, uh, the investors didn't have confidence that we would be able to focus the company. Uh, you mentioned this whole array of
0: opportunities, uh, this, which, we you know, everywhere. <laughs> it's it's great that you can do everything, but as a company, you can't do everything.
1: You can't do everything, but we had a lab in Geneva, Switzerland. We had a lab here in Cambridge. Uh, we got the first recombinant license here in Cambridge. So we were at two sites, losing money, you know, didn't have a, a strong product on uh, in the pipeline um, and that's when Jim Benson came in and he downsized we uh, uh, made a deal about the Geneva lab uh, and then focused, uh, we raised resources to focus here we focused on uh, beta interferon which uh, uh Larry Jacobs up at Buffalo had first used in multiple sclerosis from natural sources, and we had recombinant material due to Walter Fears, and um, and then we had a drug that uh, John Naganori was uh, leading in development, which was Herolog, so we focused the company on those two clinical programs, and Herolog worked, uh, and it's still a medicine used today, but the benefits were not sufficiently large, i.e. it didn't save patients' lives. It was useful to control bleeding and, and stenting and cardiac, but it didn't save people's lives. So we focused on Avonex and multiple sclerosis and that worked. Uh, and uh, that was the product launch that that made. Biogen, a self-sustaining, freestanding company. A hey, bigger
0: company. A company that now has a building with your name on it.
1: Yeah, well, that wasn't my idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Does that feel a little strange when you walk by there? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, but it's fine. Um, I have
1: d- other buildings.
0: <laughs> d- d- sounds like you um, were comfortable with your... or um, self-aware enough, I guess, to see what
1: your your role was uh, and yeah.
0: ought to be with relation to this company
1: I yes I did and I made it clear to them and they understood that this was going to be you know what I could contribute to them and you also learned a lot there's a humility
0: know. there. like and, and accumulated a lot of relationships. Yes. This is very important. You mentioned John Merriganore just as one. You know, people that you encountered.
1: Rachel and Morris was my graduate student. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, ultimately, Rachel and I became related in another, another company. Rachel Myers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, uh, yes. I, I mean, I... There must be fifty to hundred people who I know personally who's working in biotech here in Kendall Square and around the world, because they went to Biogen at one time.
0: They came up through your lab. Maybe they found something else productive to do over at Biogen, Biogen to
1: continue there, yeah. or they careers. came from other labs and worked with me at Biogen because I was head of the scientific advisory board. I was on the board. I, I met people. I. Yeah, I enjoy meeting people. I enjoy talking science with people and uh, seeing how what seeing what they're doing and why you know why they're doing it and who then where they live and what their interest is and yeah, I I really enjoy that type of contact. I just it's it's fascinating. It's like having little novels everywhere that you're following for years.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the company, you know, it's a big driver of this Economy is one of the biggest companies there is in biotech. Yeah, um, yeah. and it's kind the oldest
1: freestanding biotech company.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, last question, Phil. I know we got uh, limited on time. Um, if you were to write like a little memo to your younger self, uh, a word of advice around that time, uh, what, I, what would be kind of the headline on that?
1: I would. And the the word of advice that I would write to myself is that. When you were emerging from high school and then going to graduate school, have more confidence in yourself, step a little further along that path. Um, not that I can, you know, it, it, it's all worked out beautifully. But um, I didn't, I didn't know who I was until I got to Caltech. And then at Caltech, I realized that you know I have a lot of talent. <laughs> you know, just being modest, I had a lot of talent, uh, commitment, energy, things that that are very very important in life. Working with people, and uh, that that that's what you know a great place that gives you independence to make your own decisions and make things happen uh to a young person means
0: aim high be, be bold be bold don't be limited by other people's expectations <laughs> of you yep
1: yeah. those those are those are take-home messages that um, you know I, I look back and yeah you know, I, I I see those as very important
0: Phil sharp thank you very much for your time and for being on the long run podcast
1: Well thank you look-
0: Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.